8. We're going to start in verse 20 and go through chapter 9, verse 17. And the title of this sermon is All of Grace. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of the Black Pew Bibles under your chair and take it as our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. Genesis 8, verse 20, through chapter 9, verse 17. What does the rainbow mean? To some, it's a symbol of hope, optimism, and good things to come, according to Google. To others, it's become a symbol of gay pride, unfortunately. Maybe it's a fun superstition where you hope to find a pot of gold at the end of it. It's a great song in The Wizard of Oz. What is a rainbow? Well, according to science, a rainbow is an optical phenomenon caused by refraction internal reflection, and dispersion of light in water droplets, resulting in a continuous spectrum of light appearing in the sky. But that doesn't answer our question now, does it? Science can answer the question of what is a rainbow, but it can't answer what does the rainbow mean. What we'll see in today's text is that the rainbow is far more significant than a pot of gold. Its meaning is a precious promise, not just for us as Christians, but for everyone. So let's dive into the text. Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I have given you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. 
and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on earth. Now, last week we finished out chapter 8. But you'll notice that we're looping back again and starting in verse 20. I want to go back and dig a little bit deeper and show you that these verses are connected to chapter 9 that we're in today. Our three main headings for today's sermon are these. Point one, God's grace. Point two, God's covenant. And point three, God's sign. God's grace, God's covenant, and God's sign. So point one, God's grace. Look with me at chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Last week we saw that Noah's first act, after being rescued from judgment, was worship. He steps off the boat, immediately offers burnt offerings on the altar, and the text tells us that this was pleasing to the Lord. But the next words are somewhat shocking, aren't they? Look at verse 21. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. This seems backwards to us, doesn't it? We might expect God to say something like, I will never curse the ground or strike down every living creature because... Man has changed their ways. They got their act together. They've cleaned themselves up. They're acting righteously now. Their hearts are good. But that's not what he says, is it? He says, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, mankind is totally depraved. This doesn't mean that every human is as wicked as they can be. But it does mean that every human is born into sin because of Adam's fall in the garden. We all naturally gravitate towards sin. Our hearts, left to themselves, move toward evil. Do you see what God's saying here? He's saying, man's heart is evil. And I'm not going to strike all of them down again like this. I'm not going to give them what they deserve. Man hasn't changed. But God responds with grace. Despite man's wicked heart, God elects to be gracious. Every generation of men and women deserve to both be cursed 
and struck down like in the flood. We all deserve this, current generation included. The amount of wickedness in our world at this very moment deserves the judgment of another flood. Yet, God is merciful and gracious. He responds in blessing instead of cursing. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Does that sound familiar? Let me read for you Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 30, while your eyes are fixed on chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. So fix your eyes on chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, and I'm going to go back and read Genesis 1, verses 28 through 30. Here we go. Verse 28. And God blessed them, speaking to Adam and Eve in the garden, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seeds in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. These two accounts, I want you to see, are intentionally parallel to one another. Moses wants us to understand that Noah is a second Adam. God blesses him, calls him to be fruitful and multiply, gives him dominion over creation. In some senses, God is starting over with Noah. There are similarities. There's a parallel there. But there are differences too, right? One difference is that in Genesis 9, God gives Noah and all humans the authority to eat meat. Whether this was a new thing or not, I don't know. But I'm glad it's a thing. But more significantly, there's a difference in Adam and Noah's relationship to sin. Adam, prior to the fall, he had the capacity to sin, but wasn't born in sin. Not so with Noah. Because of the fall, Noah is naturally born in sin. Then, sins in action because of that. You can go read about this in Romans chapter 3 through 5. Here's the point that I want us to see. Even though Noah is a second Adam, his life is all of grace. The flood came in judgment, and it did everything that God purposed it to do. But it didn't fix hearts. Starting over again with Noah wouldn't lead back to Eden. Human hearts were still evil. God says this loud and clear. Therefore, all of life is grace. 
God chooses to be gracious and merciful to Noah and to his family. He blesses them. He commands them to be fruitful and multiply. So the creation mandate of Genesis 1 and 2 is still alive and well. This is what will eventually lead to the seed that will crush the serpent's head from Genesis 3.15. But even in the midst of that, even in the midst of all of this blessing and Noah being a new Adam, we quickly see that God does have some new restrictions for them, don't we? Look at verse 4. He tells them that every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Understand what's being said here. Blood throughout scripture is symbolic of life, and life belongs to God. I'll say that again. Blood is symbolic of life, and life belongs to God. God is saying, you have permission to eat animals, but you don't have permission to devour animals the way animals devour one another while they're still alive. Further, God's preparing the way here for an understanding of atonement and sacrifice. Life is in the blood, and life belongs to God. If this is true, Derek Kidner comments that belonging to God, meaning blood, belonging to God, blood could be seen as his atoning sacrifice or his atoning gift to sinners, not theirs to him. Read that closely. Think about that. If blood belongs to God, belonging to God, blood could be seen as his atoning gift to sinners, not theirs to him. Life is in the blood, and life belongs to God. We can eat animals, but we're to respect life, and most importantly, the life giver. God takes it a step further. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So he's working from lesser to greater here. If we're to respect animal life, how much more so human life? Shedding the blood of an image bearer is an offense against God himself. And God requires a reckoning. God's priority here is the sanctity of life in a post-flood world. He's providing protection for mankind in a world that we've seen so clearly had become violent in Genesis 4 and Genesis 6. There's violence everywhere. God's providing protection for mankind in that world. Christians throughout the ages have rightly seen this as the first place where God institutes capital punishment or the death penalty. Understand loud and clear that 
This isn't arguing for personal retribution. A society at large is responsible for this. This is a societal obligation before God. Now, there certainly are times when governments are unjust and the death penalty is used abusively or unjustly. Woe to those governments. They'll give an account before God. But to try to argue against the death penalty as inhumane is to argue against the plain meaning of God's word here. Still others will mock Christians for being pro-life, but also pro-death in supporting the death penalty. But I want you to see that being pro-life and being pro-capital punishment isn't actually inconsistent at all. Both hold to the sanctity of human life. In the womb, at the moment of conception, that's a human child. It's a human with life given from God. No one has the right to take that child's life. On the other hand, out of the womb, Genesis 9-6 teaches us to have a high view of human life. So much so that to unlawfully take a human life will cost you your own. This is consistent from womb to tomb. God has a high view of human life. We can't neglect the sanctity of human life as a society. This isn't a political statement. It's a biblical one. And God's image is on the line here. That's what our text is telling us. Then, God reiterates the command from Genesis chapter 1. Look at our text in verse 7. So on the heels of that, he says, And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Again, we're not to destroy God's image in murder, but we're to expand God's image through childbearing. We live in a day and age that says, children slow you down from achieving your goals and dreams. Children are an inconvenience. Children will decrease your productivity or negatively affect your pursuit of self-fulfillment. That's what our world screams at us. God says, children are a blessing. Psalm 127 verses 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. God desires for his image to multiply and increase greatly on the earth. And all of this is by grace. So point one, God's grace. Point two, God's covenant. Look with me starting in verses 8 through 11. Verse 8 through 11, chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you 
that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. While God said this to himself in verse 21 of chapter 8, he's now in chapter 9 speaking it to Noah out loud with details. So what's a covenant? In essence, in its most simple terms, a covenant is a promise. Covenants are all over the Bible. And I want us to see some particular truths about this specific covenant, the covenant that God makes with Noah. First, this covenant is unilateral. It's unilateral. Some covenants are bilateral, meaning if you do this, I'll do that. Not this one. Notice that Noah is strangely silent here. The initiative is all on God. God says, I establish my covenant, regardless of what humans do from this point forward, God will unilaterally keep his covenant. Mankind doesn't even need to assent to or acknowledge the covenant. This one's all on God, making it an unconditional covenant. So it's unilateral all coming from God, all one way. Second, this covenant is universal. Universal. Again, many covenants are specific between two people. Think like a marriage covenant. Or between a specific set of people, like our church covenant. In this case, though, this covenant isn't. It's not just between God and Noah even though it's called the Noahic Covenant. It's not even just with Noah and his family. Look at the text again, verses 9 through 10. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth that is with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. Verse 15 God says, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Verse 16, between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 17, between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Do you see the scope of this? It's for all people of all time. And it's gracious. It's a promise of preservation. It's a promise not to destroy wicked humanity again with the flood. This is God's common grace for all humanity, and it stems from God's kindness. So it's unilateral, and it's universal. Third, this covenant is eternal. It's eternal. God doesn't just make this covenant with Noah and his generation. Look at the words that he uses. Look back up in chapter 8, verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Chapter 9, verse 11. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 15. 
and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Never again. I absolutely love what James Boyce writes here. He says this. He says, it is good to have God say never. Because use of the word by, a human, by human beings is often ludicrous. Haven't you done something so foolish that you said, well, I've learned my lesson and I'll never do that again. But then you did it again. Haven't you ever looked at someone else's sin and said, I'll never do that. But you did. That is the way with human beings, he writes. We promise beyond what we can guarantee. Like Peter, we say to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. But we do deny him. Only God can say never and stick by it without fail. Isn't that good? When God says never, he means it. Here are a couple of just handful of scriptural examples. Judges chapter 2, verse 1. God says to his people, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Jesus speaking to this woman. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. How about John 10, verses 27 and 28? Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. When God says never, you can take it to the bank. God says he'll never flood the earth again. And this covenant is with all of mankind forever. Whether you're a Christian or not, Because of this covenant in Genesis 9, you are currently experiencing God's goodness and his grace in not flooding the earth again. So God's grace and God's covenant. Point three, God's sign. God's sign. So as God graciously covenants with Noah and all of humanity, As he often does with covenants, he gives a sign to go with the covenant. Look at verses 12 through 16. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all the flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. There are 
three particular truths I want to point out here. Number one, when we think about rainbows, we tend to think of something beautiful after a storm. And it is. It absolutely is beautiful. But look at the text a little bit closer. The word rainbow isn't there. The word throughout our text is simply bow. The rainbow is what's being clearly described in Genesis chapter 9. But the word bow has a particular context and meaning. A bow is a weapon of war. The bow of the archer. We see this in places like Genesis 48, 22, Joshua 24, 12, 1 Samuel 2, 4, or in Psalm 7, verses 12 through 13. Psalm 7, verses 12 through 13 says this, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons making his arrows fiery shafts. Do you see that? Tom Schreiner writes, If God unleashed his bow and let it fly, then all humanity would be destroyed. Do you see this? Instead of a bent bow readied in the hands of an angry God, instead of that, the sign of the covenant is a bow hung in the sky. A promise of peace, to not wipe out the human race, to not let his fiery arrows fly. A bow is a weapon of war, turned into an instrument of peace. Second, I want to point out God's exact language here. Notice that God doesn't say, Noah, when you see the bow in the clouds you're going to remember my covenant. Even though that's true, when we see the bow, we should remember God's covenant. But look at what God says. Verse 14. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. Verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I, meaning God, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant. The sign of the bow is for Noah and for us to remember that God remembers his covenant. We remember the covenant and we remember that God remembers his covenant, which we learned earlier is the most important thing because it's a unilateral covenant by God. This sign is meant to reassure us of God's mercy toward us in the covenant Because he remembers his own faithfulness. Third, the rainbow is a symbol of God's glory, splendor, and power. Look at Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. Ezekiel 1, verse 28, speaking of the throne of God, says this, Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. 
Further on, in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle John writes this. He says, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. In both of these cases, in both of these passages, we see the rainbow as a visible sign of the splendor, power, and glory of Christ seated on the throne. This is why God created the rainbow, to remind us of his glory, to remind us of his power, that he justly judged the world by flood once, and he's powerful enough to do it again but to reassure us that he remembers his covenant. It's to remind us of his mercy. What kind of a God is this? He's taken an image of warfare and turned it into a sign of mercy and peace. Now, tune in here. This covenant... The Noahic covenant is a covenant of preservation, but not of salvation. I'll say that again. The Noahic covenant is a covenant of preservation, but not of salvation. It spares everyone, but eternally saves no one. But here's the truth. Without this covenant none of the other covenants would have happened. The Bible would be one long story of flood after flood after flood after flood for deserving sinners like you and me. But because of this covenant, God has time to make other covenants, like the one with Abraham and Israel and David and the new covenant through Jesus Christ. Because of this covenant in Genesis 9, you and I are given time to turn from our sin and to trust in Christ. In the new covenant, in Christ's blood, shed on the cross, doesn't just spare us. It saves us. It doesn't just preserve us. It washes our sins away. Once again, In the new covenant, God has taken a symbol or a weapon of war, the cross, and he's made it into a symbol of peace for us. And by the way, the new covenant also comes with signs. We call them ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both meant to reassure us of God's promise to us. So every time you remember your baptism as a Christian or you see other Christians get baptized, you're meant to remember God's faithfulness to his covenant through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Every time you take the Lord's Supper, 
you're to remember God's faithfulness to his covenant through Christ's body and blood. These signs are absolute gifts to us as the church. They don't save us, but they remind us of who God is and what he does. Every time you Christians see the rainbow, you should remember God. And most importantly, remember that he remembers his covenant. And in that moment, be thankful to God for his promises, most significantly, the cross. Let's pray.